0: Well, our summer sermon series has been entitled Encounters with Jesus. And we've been looking at encounters with Jesus from the Gospel of John. And remember, the whole point of John's Gospel is that we would believe, that we would behold, and that we would encounter Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior. And that in encountering Him, the Word made flesh that we would taste, see, and experience life in His name. And John's desire is our desire here at Carriage Lane. That whether you've walked with the Lord for decades or for days, or perhaps you're here and you're not walking with Him at all, that no matter however or whatever brought you through those doors this morning, our desire... Is that you would encounter Jesus, for there truly is no greater need in all the world. So this morning we come to our third encounter Jesus' cleansing of the temple, as found in John chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me there, and as you're turning there, let me share a story. Uh, During my time overseas, I spent a weekend hiking with some friends and we were hiking our way along this path up a mountain through some fairly dense forest. And that's when our three-person crew came upon a very sharp bend in the trail. Now my friend who was serving as our guide had gone up ahead of the rest of us to scout out which trail we were wanting to follow. Now there's something I should tell you about my Friend. He was this unflappable mountain of a man. He was quiet and gentle, a loyal and uh, dependable friend, certainly. But he was not the most verbose conversationalist. He was a man of few words who was more at ease listening to conversation than communicating. He was more at ease grunting and nodding and smiling than actually talking. Yet a few moments after he disappeared around that bend, I heard my near silent friend begin shouting and screaming at the top of his lungs, throwing things and thrashing around like a man crazed. So as my other friend and I came tearing around that bend, we had a ton of questions. Because hearing him screaming and yelling like this was rather unexpected and a little out of character. And our questions were answered in fairly short order as about 40 to 50 yards up ahead of us on that trail was a bear. And fortunately for us that day, the, this bear slowly turned and lumbered off in a different direction. Friends, can I just say this? But the Jesus we encounter in our passage this morning is a bit unexpected. He does things here that are a tad perplexing. And perhaps even a touch unsettling and disruptive as he flips over tables and chases after oxen and sheep and possibly even people with a whip. But whether we can see it or not, what we need to know is that there is a dangerous bear lurking around in our passage. And that same bear is alive and well today in our world, in our lives as well. So let's go now to God's word. And may we remember this is the word of God written for you and for me this morning. So may we, he bless the reading and the teaching of his word. So hear now John chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken thus far, the word of the Lord. So there are three things that I want us to see from our passage this morning. The reason for Jesus's disruption the reaction to their distraction, and the revelation amidst their consternation. Or more simply, the reason, the reaction, and the revelation. So the first point, the reason for his disruption. Verse 13 tells us that the whole reason for Jesus going to Jerusalem is to celebrate the Passover feast. To celebrate perhaps the single most significant in Israelite history, the exodus. The Passover was celebrating the Lord's faithfulness in bringing his people out of the bondage of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. A feast that Jews from far and wide would have been traveling to Jerusalem to participate in. The, uh, the festivities and to celebrate and to worship the Lord. And part of what they would be coming to do is to offer up sacrifices in the temple and to pay their temple tax as found in Exodus 30, verse 13. So in some respect, as Jesus arrives on the scene, there is a valid and valuable service being done by these vendors and money changers. The road to Jerusalem would have been long and arduous for many. So it would have been way easier to buy these animals for sacrifices when person got there rather than attempting to haul them over land and sea and risking spot or blemish along the journey to jerusalem and as far as those money changers go the temple tax could only be paid in a certain currency so from a practical standpoint it just makes sense that there were people present who could exchange foreign currencies for those that wouldn't have needed it so what's the big deal What's driving Jesus to start flipping tables and chasing animals around with a whip? And it's at this point here that the gospel of John account, John's account differs a touch from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and has led many commentators to argue that Jesus cleanses the temple twice during his ministry, once here in the beginning of his ministry and once towards the end, because John makes no mention of financial impropriety. Here in John, he he doesn't refer to the people selling their wares in the temple as a den of robbers. Here in this passage, the issue is as we see it in verse 14. Because all of this is happening in the temple. And the temple is not to be a marketplace or a stockyard. It's a place of worship. And therefore, Jesus' problem is not that, that they were doing such things, but where they were doing it in the temple. But why? Think about it. What does Jesus hear as he walks into the temple, as he comes into the Gentile courts? Rather than worship, rather than things being decent and in order, what he hears is a cluttering chaos. The lowing of cattle, the bleeding of sheep, cooing of pigeons and loud voices, bartering prices back and forth. Again, Jesus' issue here is not commerce. It's not the buying and selling of goods for profit. It's the place and the placement of it all. So whether it was their intent or not, by allowing this marketplace inside the temple, they were keeping and hindering people from worshiping the one true God. And specifically, by allowing it in the Gentile courts, They were hindering, they were distracting non Jews and Gentiles from worshiping and learning of the one true God. Which is significant because we need to remember the calling and the command that God had placed on the children of Abraham. For remember that when the Lord called Abram in Genesis chapter 12 out of the land of his forefathers, he gave him four massive promises. He promised that, not, that he would bless him with a people, with offspring, with children as countless as the, as the stars. He promised him a place, the land of promise. He promised him his presence, that he, that the Lord would be with him wherever he went. But finally, the Lord promised Abram that he and his offspring would have a glorious purpose that through Abram and his descendants that the whole world would be blessed. And what this scene at the, at the temple reveals is that along the way, that as water has gone on the proverbial bridge of life, that they've lost sight of what God had called them to be doing, that missionally they've been set adrift and become preoccupied with themselves and their own pursuits rather than the pursuit and the purposes of God for their lives. That instead of the temple being a place for inviting the Gentiles, the outsiders in their midst to meet with, learn of, and worship the Lord, the Jews had transformed the Gentile courts into a marketplace, into just another place to be distracted from God, Imagine trying to pray. Imagine trying to learn or to listen to anything above the chaotic symphony of that marketplace or emporium, as Jesus called it in verse 16. Would that be possible? Potentially, for those with a laser focus. But easy? Not likely. This outdoor market would have likely made for fun people watching, but not so great for prayer thoughtful reflection and worship because it would have been a place full of distraction and brothers and sisters there is an incredible danger in distraction particularly depending on what you are being distracted from and in this passage they are being distracted from the lord my question is how did they get there was this just a matter of prejudice did they just loathe the Gentiles, who, those who weren't Jews, that much? Was it a matter of sheer pragmatism? Was it just easier to have all the animals and money changers in the temple rather than setting up shop just outside? Was this ultimately just a matter of convenience or ease of use? Or was this just a lack of intentionality, awareness that over time had set them dangerously adrift? Losing sight of the incredible calling that God had placed on their lives. To not only worship the Lord themselves, but to invite and encourage the nations to join with them. So to apply this to our own situation and circumstance, earlier using the Westminster Confession of Faith, we affirmed that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That the purpose for which all of humanity was created, designed, and intended, and hardwired to do was to worship the Lord. So my question is this. What are we allowing to distract us from our chief end and primary purpose in life? How are our actions or our inactions potentially hindering or distracting the people around us from worshiping the Lord? Think carefully of our little ones, of our children, of our teenagers. Are there ways in which we are distracting them from worshiping the Lord? That in our incessant haste and busyness, are we allowing good things to crowd out and distract us and our children from the greater thing? Brothers and sisters, can we admit to ourselves and to one another that we are an easily distracted people. And that of particular danger, we are easily distracted from the worship of our Lord. That rather than fixing our gaze upon Christ, we instead turn so quickly to lesser things, cluttering our hearts and distracting our souls with things like wealth, sports, reputation, Career advancements, endless to do lists, unintentional just busyness, accumulating the latest and the greatest, seeking the recognition and the applause of men. And on top of it all, there are those glowing rectangles in our pockets, the countless hours that we lose scrolling on our phones. Now, with many of these things, there's nothing intrinsically wrong or sinful about them, but let me ask. Proverbs four twenty three says, "Above all else, keep your hearts, for from for, for from it flows, the wellspring of life." So, what then are we cultivating in our hearts? Is it a temple, or is it a chaotic marketplace? And how are we allowing the cluttered marketplaces of our hearts to distract us, to distract our children, and? all those around us from the true worship of God, which is a rather haunting question. But our passage this morning forces us to ask some unpleasant questions of ourselves. But I want us to see how Jesus responds to distracted and distracting people, which is our second point, Jesus' reaction to their distraction. So what do we do with Jesus' reaction here? Because it's all rather strange, isn't it? What do we do with his whip of cords? What do we do with flipped over tables? What do we do with coins scattering all about on the floor? And with Jesus, our Savior, driving man and beast out of the temple before him? Because all of this is just a bit unexpected. Maybe a bit unseemly. And clearly a bit odd. Jesus is meek and mild. He's gentle and lowly. He's tender and kind, and he prepares a table before us. Yet sometimes, when necessary, he makes a whip, and rather than setting the table, he'll flip it over and make a big old mess out of everything. Notice in verse 15, it tells us that Jesus made a whip out of cords. Most commentators believe that these cords were probably cords that had been made out of grass or something of similar effect. So his whip is probably closer to a rolled up piece of paper than the whip of Indiana Jones or the cat of nine tails that was prominent in Jesus' day and that ultimately he would have to endure on his way to the cross because it wasn't the weapon that he wielded that caused man and beast to scatter It was him. It was his raised voice, his raised hand, the sheer force of his personality that caused them to scatter. Just imagine the chaos of this scene. Watching Jesus in the corner, taking these cords and fashioning them into a whip and then proceeding to drive man and beast out of the temple. Our Savior, raising his voice and even his hands, in righteous anger. So what do we do with all this? Well, as our text tells us later, what the disciples remembered about this incident is in verse 17. Zeal for his father's house consumed him. Because Jesus is meek and mild. He is gentle and lowly. He is tender and kind. But in the great and grave danger of our distraction... There is no one more graciously disruptive than he is. Earlier I told you that there is a bear in our passage. And the bear is how easily we are to distract. How easily we are distracted from that which we were created to do. That we are so easily entangled, enthralled, and enthused by the desires, dreams, and the pursuits of this life. That they distract our hearts and divert our gaze from that which is of greatest importance. Yet we have a Savior who is willing to enter in and to disrupt us in our distraction. That he doesn't just give us over to the desires of our hearts. He doesn't just allow our hearts to harden towards him and his ways. To quote another pastor, we have a Savior who is willing to break our fingers to get our hands off that which would ultimately destroy us. Because Jesus is a Savior who will at times wound, but he does so only to heal. That he finds the pressure points of our souls and then he digs down deep in order to heal and to restore. Which in many ways is an incredibly comforting thought that we have such a Savior who will graciously disrupt us. But the reality of that can be a touch unsettling, particularly as we find ourselves walking our way through the nitty-gritty of one of God's bittersweet providences. Because the brokenness of this life is messy, And it hurts, to quote C.S. Lewis, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It then is a severe mercy, a traumatic kindness Yet even in the severest of mercies, there remains and there abide the sweetness to God's grace. As he somehow, in, in ways that only he can, sovereignly works together all things for the good of those who love him. Perhaps this whole story, this whole encounter with Jesus has you a bit unsettled. Well, good. In part because it's meant to be unsettling. It's meant to be disruptive and rather challenging because if your Jesus never disrupts you, if he never disrupts your plans, if he never disrupts your life, if he never challenges your will, challenges your affections, if he never leaves you feeling a touch uneasy about things, then you may not be following him at all. Yes, our God is a God of grace and mercy and kindness. And there are countless examples of this strewn throughout the Gospels. But here, here John needs us to know that Jesus is also the Lord of glory that Jesus is the Lord who reigns and who rules over all things and everything is held in subjection to him, including us. And because of that, he therefore has the right to flip over tables, to rearrange some of our furniture, and who has the authority to empty out the fridge of our lives which is what we see in our passage this morning. That Jesus is our disruptor amidst our distraction to show us that the true, the real Jesus is both the God of grace and the Lord of glory. That he is the one who will comfort us when we are disrupted, but he will also disrupt us when we are far too comfortable and in great and grave danger of veering off course or of slowly but surely going drift. Yet even as he reveals himself to be our great disruptor, he reveals something all the more marvelous about himself, which leads us to our third point, his revelation amidst their consternation. Feathers and dust and hay are only beginning to settle back down to the ground, and on the ground lay overturned tables, scattered coins, and the remnants of the of what were once stalls of oxen and sheep and pigeons. A mixture of surprise and confusion, and maybe some apprehension, hangs about in the air as the Jews storm their way over to Jesus, declaring in verse eighteen. What sign do you show us for doing these things? Which is to say, by what right do you do this? Or to make it southern, who do you think you are? So after all the yelling, all the whippings and flippings, Jesus answered them saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up which leaves everyone even more perplexed and more confounded. The Jews are looking around at the temple and saying, but it's taken 46 years to just get this. There's no way to tear this thing down and build it back up in three days. That's ridiculous. And in scene, without answering their questions, without explaining it to the disciples, the story is just abruptly over. Jesus gives us no further explanation or justification. The story just ends. And it's John who gives us a quick postscript or a quick update to the story in verses 21 through 22. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When he therefore was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. You see, it wasn't until years after the fact that this whole event finally made sense. It finally clicked to the disciples. For they too had left the temple that day a bit perplexed by what they had seen. But what Jesus was referring to was not some great feat of engineering or project management, But what he was doing was revealing something about who he is and what he came to do. He was talking about himself. In this statement, Jesus was revealing. He was declaring something about the reality of who he is. That he is the true temple. The true place to meet with God because he is God himself. That he himself is what the tabernacle and the temple were porting towards. The presence of God in the midst of his people. That while the temple and the tabernacle were shadows and types, Jesus is the true substance. Jesus is the real deal. That while they were just mere promises. Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the reality of those promises. For as John one fourteen tells us, that in Jesus the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. And in the Greek, that word for dwelt is the word for tabernacled. The Word became flesh, and He tabernacled among us. He lived. Among us, he walked amongst us, and he did so with a righteous perfection and without sin, so that by his body and blood he might accomplish for us such a great salvation that into the unbearable mess of this world, that into the distracted and sinful messes of our lives, Jesus comes. He enters in and he graciously disrupts us, showing us our sin and revealing to us, our desperate need of him and revealing to us his righteousness and our desperate need for him. Teaching and showing us that for our sake, he was destroyed so that we wouldn't be. That upon the cross he took upon himself the weight, the guilt, and the wrath that our sins deserved. Dying the death that was ours for the sins that were ours. Yet graciously giving to us a righteousness that was not our own but his. A righteousness in Christ that encourages us to storm the throne room of grace as God's. Beloved children, for in Christ the temple veil that separated God and man had been torn in two from top to bottom. That Christ, having ascended to his Father's right hand, sends to us now his Spirit, which now lives in us, who by faith believe in Christ, making those who are in Christ Jesus a temple of the Holy Spirit. You see, brothers and sisters, the cleansing of our own temples, of our own bodies, of our own souls and lives is only possible because of the the destruction of his. That through his destruction, we were made whole. That by his wounds, we were healed. That all the sin that had broken in us might be fully restored in him because he who was destroyed for us was resurrected to us on the third day that sin and death could hold him no longer and that jesus our savior our redeemer and our friend is alive and he forever lives with his people so the question is this is this great and wondrous hope yours this morning Because this is the hope. This is the good news that Jesus is offering to you this very morning. I hope that this day can be yours from now until eternity. If you will but look to Jesus. So let me invite you to repent and to believe the gospel. So to conclude, we've seen Jesus' reason seen his reaction and his revelation in this text. But what do we do with this encounter with Jesus? Because this might not be the Jesus we expect, but it's truly the Jesus that we need. For it should make us stand in awe and be astounded that we have such a Savior. A Savior who will in love console us through consolation, through confrontation. Who in his grace will disrupt us in our distraction and who for his own glory will prepare a table before us by first flipping it over. So brothers and sisters, may we behold the great disruptor of our souls who will give us no rest until we find our rest in him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, and we praise you for this word. Father, as we ponder your word, Father, would you disrupt us where we need to be disrupted, and Father, would you comfort us where we need to be comforted. Father, would you use your word to change us and to transform us, And to make us more and more like Jesus, we pray. All in Jesus' name. Amen.